The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Zach and I have both been annoyed by a tendency in these sorts of conversations to conflate liberal democracy and democracy or liberalism and democracy. We think of democracy as the kind of hardware and liberalism is the software that you can run on it, right? Democracy is simply free expression and its consequences. And those consequences can be, can run the gamut from fascism to, you know, the most platonic ideal of a liberal democracy you can imagine. Um, and liberalism is a culture of norms and practices and institutions that, that check it, that funnel it in directions that I think most of us would prefer. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 11th, 2022. We often use the terms democracy and liberal democracy interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. Democracy means majority rule and public participation. Liberal democracy means democracy plus minority rights. There's no guarantee that democracy will be liberal. And in fact, some of the same things that enable democracy can also undermine its liberal commitments. Zach Gershberg, a professor of journalism and media studies at Idaho State University, and Sean Illing, host of the Vox Conversations podcast, have recently released a new book, The Paradox of Democracy, Free Speech, Open Media, and Perilous Persuasion. In the book, they argue that every democracy is fundamentally shaped by the dominant media technology of its time, and that the current landscape of social media and cable news fuels our democracy, but also pushes it in an illiberal, authoritarian direction. I spoke with Zach and Sean about how American democracy got to this point, how the present compares to the past, and what, if anything, can be done to put liberal democracy on firmer footing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 11th. Zach Gershberg and Sean Illing on the paradox of democracy. So I want to start by asking how you two came to write this book and how your thinking in particular has evolved given the events of the past several years. You know, we've had two Trump impeachments, January 6th, Trump's deplatforming from social media, the Biden administration's attempt, whether successful or not, we'll see, to bring us back to some normality. You know, how has that all shaped how you've thought about this project? I don't know, Zach, you want to tell the origin story there? I can, but it started with uh, Sean coming out for a visit and going on a hike where we were seemingly tracked by a mountain lion. Uh, But we had some pretty serious philosophical differences about politics, communications, things like that. But we sort of talked through kind of different approaches to thinking about society and politics. And um, 
sort of started discussing an idea is like, what if we sort of uh, mash these all up together, combining law, theory, philosophy, media studies, and those sorts of things. You know, the interesting thing, and this was, Zach, I came out there to give that talk at Idaho State, and this was a few months before Trump's election, right? So it was like October, um, September 2016. And I was thinking about writing a book. I was doing a lot of pieces sort of in the vein of like, you know, the democracy is dying, <laughs> that, that whole thing. And I was pretty convinced that it was, and maybe it still is, but I was very much kind of captive to the mood of the moment. And then I got out there and I, and I talked to Zach and I hadn't really, I didn't know who Marshall McLuhan was. I mean, I heard his name before, but I'd never read anything that he wrote. I'd never heard of Neil Postman. I, I just didn't know much about, I didn't think much about media and the history of media and how it is interacted with, with politics, um, really going all the way back to ancient Greece. And so Zach sort of opened up my mind to that. And we sort of found a way to blend my political theory with his knowledge of, of media theory and media history and yada, yada, yada. We have a book. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, so let's, let's talk about the book. So I'm going to oversimplify enormously here, but I see your book as making two important points related, but separate. The, the first point is that although we talk about liberal democracy as it's, as if it's a single thing, the two ideas, liberalism and democracy don't actually have that much to do with one another. And then the, the second and related point your book is making is that the thing that connects those two brings them together, liberalism and democracy, and sometimes pushes them apart, is media. And that's why you say, I think near the beginning of your book, that media ecology is the master political science. And is that a fair summary of the, of the things you're trying to get across in this, in this work? Yeah, no, it, it may be a bit of, <laughs> it may be a bit of a stretch to say that media ecology is a master political science. I mean, something we we took pains to do here in this book is we're not trying to say that we've, we've cracked the code here. We're not trying to say that here, here is the definitive way to think about, to understand, to model democracy. We're saying this is a very important way to see it and conceptualize it. And it's a way that has been under theorized and underappreciated. So we're going to try to fill that hole here. And, you know, I think Zach and I have both been annoyed by a tendency in these sorts of conversations to conflate liberal democracy and democracy or liberalism and democracy. We think of democracy as the kind of hardware and liberalism is a software that you can run on it, right? Democracy is simply free expression and its consequences. And those consequences can be, can run the gamut from fascism to, you know, the most platonic ideal of a liberal democracy you can imagine. Um, and liberalism is a culture of norms and practices and institutions that that check it, that funnel it in directions that I think most of us would prefer. But it is not democracy as such. And to fail to see that, I think, is, is a terrible mistake. And that's something that I think happens a lot in the discourse and in some of the literature on, on democracy. Zach, you're the uh, you're the media theorist. So do you do you want to pick up the mantle of uh, media studies being the master <laughs> political science? Was that a line you wrote? <laughs> no, it's actually one of Sean's lines. Um, you know, uh, so so it's kind of funny. But in in some ways, this was not necessarily the book we thought we were going to be writing. We thought we were going to be writing a sort of, well, I would say uh, something that's become 
pretty standard, you know, democracy's dying and here's the seven things we need to do to save it. And as we got into the history and looking at all of it, uh, we're like, no, actually, we're, we're, we're heading towards a place, especially during the Trump years and everything going on, where we're, we're returning to what democracy actually looks like. And so the variables that kept leaping out at us when we looked at Democratic Athens or the, the Roman Republic or the early American states, as well as the French Revolution, and then on to the 20th century and 21st, is that um, the sense of free expression, but then also how media, the overall communications environment, influences that in ways that, and Alan, I really do like how you put that, that in some ways, because we think it's very important that we distinguish democracy as such from liberal democracy. And in some ways, we keep seeing, I think, the media environment pushing those two things apart. And liberal democracy is just one sort of, it's now just kind of one party or platform within which democracy can work, but it's by no means inevitable. And I think we have spent too far a time just assuming those norms and institutions of of liberalism just go hand in hand with democracy. Yeah, I think the way we put it in the book is to say that liberalism is is one exit along the democratic highway, but it is just an exit. There are others, most of which are, are less <laughs> desirable. So let, let me stand up for the idea that there's something special about liberal democracy as a coherent unit, right? Because I, I think you're totally right. And it's just historically, it's pretty clear that there are many exits, as you put it, to democracy. Uh, but it does seem that the only exit, quote unquote, that allows a democracy to stay a democracy is liberal democracy, right? Like you can't, you know, democracy can end in fascism, but you can't have a fascist democracy, or at least not after the first election uh, that establishes it. So, you know, if, for the defenders of, of liberal democracy as a kind of coherent whole, isn't there a way in which like there actually is something special about liberalism's connection to democracy that is not true for fascism or totalitarianism or you know kleptocracy or whatnot? I would say that's true, I think, largely, right? I think liberalism is a way of preserving democracy, right? But it is contingent, right? And it, it can it, you can lose that, you know. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate fully, right? I mean, the kind of democracy we all want to live in, I think, is ensured and preserved and reinforced through the values and the institutions of liberalism. But if you lose that, you're you're left with just a blank slate that is democracy, which is just a wide open culture of open communication, and that is a very unpredictable, unwieldy thing. And to take liberalism for granted, to assume that it is democracy as such and not a way of funneling and, and preserving democracy, I think is a, is a, is a terrible mistake. I, I think also we're, we're not trying, because the back half of the book is all about how the a age of liberal democracy triumphed and then the age of liberal democracy died. But it's, uh, this isn't, you know, Sean and I running on the beach bare chested and, you know, doing the rocky, you know, hug in the splashing water and cheering on its demise. We I'd think, watch that. <laughs> You're the only one, this, my friend. <laughs> this is a family podcast, I thought. Now, uh, That's a Patreon exclusive, everyone. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it is, there is something um, melancholic, I think, 
Uh, and you can see this reflected sometimes in, 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 you know, coverage like on CNN. They so desperately want a Watergate moment where, where uh, these moments will matter and save us and the institutions will stand up and they keep, they keep even asking for it. Like, was this, I mean, it's, it's all very meta. They keep asking John Dean, was this the John Dean moment? And, uh, and I just think it's, it's remarkable. We, we desperately want that, but, but it's gone. And, and now liberal democracy endures as one, a, a sort of one party battling with others the norms can no longer be taken for granted. A thought I had while reading this book is, you know, given, and again, I agree with this, that democracy does not imply liberalism and it can often lead to some very bad exits. Is it democracy that we should be so concerned about? Maybe what we should be concerned about is liberalism. And to the extent that democracy helps us get there, that's great. But ultimately, it's not the democracy thing we should care about. It's whatever system gets us liberalism, right? And you know, I wonder if you disagree with that. Is it is it because you think that, well, as a practical matter, not only is liberalism the best way to preserve democracy, but democracy is the best way to preserve liberalism? Like, you know, a, a benevolent autocracy does not usually stay benevolent for very long. Or do you think there's something actually inherently valuable about democracy over and above the fact that historically speaking, it has tended or has been the best way to get to liberalism? Yeah, I mean, we say pretty explicitly in the book that we are pro-democracy, right? That democracy, for all its faults and contradictions and paradoxes, still remains the best form of political life. And it remains the best form of political life because it affords the possibility of free expression and the ability to check power, right? That is its claim to superiority over every other form of political life. And every other form of political life is almost certain to degenerate into some kind of tyranny, or it's almost tyranny by definition. Democracy can go that way, but it doesn't have to. And that's why we kind of rope in this this existentialist dimension of democracy, because it really does turn on its citizens and the decisions they make or don't make and how they come to make those decisions, which again is in large part a function of the media ecology, at least in our minds. So do you, do you think that, for example, the idea of a liberal autocracy is coherent? So I, I know Singapore is always the example that comes to mind, right? And we can argue about how autocratic it is, but like, it's not exactly a democracy, but it seems like an okay place. I've been there. You know, the night markets are delicious. People seem pretty happy. Uh, you, do, do you think that the problem with a Singapore is that it's just not going to stay liberal forever or it's not liberal? Like it just, it doesn't matter how quote unquote free the people feel they are. They're just not free because they don't live in a democracy. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, I mean, and it's interesting that Singapore functions as a city state in in some ways. I mean, that obviously is, is a sort of challenge. And I think we sort of close the book on this note is like, we have a choice to uh, prefer the comfort or security of, of the illusion of Singapore. But I mean, contrast Singapore with all these other sort of wannabe authoritarians promising security. And, and I think the frustrating thing about democracy uh, that we really try to communicate in the book, Sean was just sort of going over with those two things, is the opportunities for free expression and the opportunities 
to provide a check on power. Those are obviously just opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities are squandered or uh, exploited. And why we sort of are somewhat critical of liberal democracy is we, we see it as it has papered over both the opportunities and limitations of, of democracy. And now we're all left without a, any sense of why we face what we face. But I, I, I think that's a challenge. We, we say if people want to walk through that door of preferring an authoritarian sort of model that may provide security and, and liberal values, perhaps that that's what they should go, go for. But, but we also have been, I think we, we try to plant our flag that even though we're, we're tr- complicating the picture of democracy, we're also there uh, and ready for it. Yeah, I think we even say this in the book, right? Like I would, I would tell the Grand Inquisitor to go fuck himself, right? Like I would always, 10 times out of 10, choose the chaos and the uncertainty of freedom over the stability of, of slavery, over the illusion of security that you may get in some kind of authoritarian state. Because in an authoritarian state, the ability of the human person to express him and herself freely and openly is not available. And that is not a world worth living in. But if you do want to live in a free world, you do want to open up society, that entails a lot of risk and it entails commitments, right? And, and whether or not society is able to, to, to do those things turns on a lot of different factors, but it is not guaranteed. It is not certain. It is, it is a question mark in lots of ways. It is a, a, it is a ongoing perpetual experiment that is unfinishable by definition. And that is the, that is the burden of democracy. I think it is absolutely worth pushing that boulder up that hill over and over and over again, or keeping it from rolling uh, back down to the ground. But it is hard. It is hard, no doubt. So I, I want to go to where the, the boulder starts rolling historically. Uh, and Zach, since you, you mentioned the, the, the fact that Singapore is a city-state, I mean, this all starts with city-states. Obviously, this starts with Athens. And that's how sort of you open your, your book. And one thing I really appreciate about it is, and most of the book is actually history of how this tension plays out and how it's mediated by media technology as that you know, advances from the oral tradition to, you know, whatever the hell TikTok is, <laughs> you know, and we've had this tension since the very beginning, since ancient Athens. And so I'd love to hear you, you both say more about how the ancient Greeks thought about democracy, the idea of free speech versus free participation, you know, the influence of that thought on the, the kind of, you know, Western slash modern tradition that we find ourselves in. And, and, you know, ultimately, do you think that these debates that we're still having, it's all just kind of footnotes on Socrates' execution? Like, we're just, this is all this is about. We're just replaying this over and over and over again in a variety of different cultural and technological, you know, formations. So the, the, the one thing I find kind of fascinating, uh, because we, we certainly play up, right, Socrates' trial in execution, but, but actually something in our look at uh, classical democracy and rhetoric and all those sorts of things is, is how this, you know, the term isagoria becomes really important in Athens, this notion of free and equal speech by uh, citizens in the assembly. Uh, But the important thing is we always remember Socrates, but there is a continual practice of ostracism in Athens where politicians are sent away for years and then come back and, and, you know, uh, Socrates chose, you know, I guess the, the hemlock after his trial uh, went awry, but you know Aristotle was ostracized. There were sophists on the other side of Socrates 
who were ostracized uh, and had to had to leave. And so it is kind of as we you know seem to have all this anxiety about uh, democracy in the here and now, right? You know, a coup attempt, cancel culture, all these sorts of things coming to a to a head. I don't know. There's always been this impulse to say, well, we weren't like Athens. We were more like Rome, which I think we say in the book is was somehow even worse. Uh, but <laughs> you know, but I, I think it's just interesting that we're using different terms for the anxieties we're experiencing, but these were sort of baked in, even though the media environment, the communications environment was different, um, but we were still using persuasion and personal animus in bad ways. Yeah. I mean, I, this is not exactly a, a hot take, but I mean, I, I think Plato really was an it getter, right? And even though in the end we have to depart from him because he didn't believe in democracy, he really didn't. He thought it would, it was chaos and that it would degenerate into herd hysteria. And so he preferred this, you know, the, the, the philosopher King, which is, is just, you know, kind of fantasy land nonsense. But to his credit, I think he was right in understanding the power of rhetoric, right? Like watching the birth of, of, of sophistry, like watching how when you open up society to the, the persuasive powers of, of demagogues and bad faith actors and bullshit artists, that that can go very, very badly. He wasn't wrong about that, you know? And the question is, you know, is that a reason to reject democracy or is it just a, a challenge that has to be managed and addressed? And, and we think it's the latter, but it is a challenge. Like he wasn't exactly wrong about that. You know, I think that's pretty clear. I think history has borne that out. So the, like I said, there's a lot of really good history in this book. And I, I really encourage the readers to, to you know, if, they can read it if only for that. Um, though there's there's much more uh, in in the book, obviously, than than that. Um, I, I want to sort of skip over some of the history, um, but I do kind of want to then kind of fast forward then to I think a particularly interesting moment in the story that you tell, which is sort of the 1930s and right, the rise of fascism. Um, because one thing that I, I found striking uh, and something I actually didn't see discussed in the book, and I'm sort of curious what you think about it is the idea of what's sometimes called militant democracy or defensive democracy. You know, the idea that we don't just have to choose between, on the one hand, a wide open democracy that allows anti-democratic forces to rise up and take advantage of it, or on the other hand, just not having a democracy at all. So the the term militant democracy comes from the, the German-American political philosopher Karl Lowenstein, who had fled from Germany in 1933 and then came to America in 1937, uh, coined the idea of militant democracy to, to refer to ways in which democracies can take limited anti-democratic measures um, to defend themselves, right? Something that Weimar did not do, but that the post-war German constitution allows for. You, you can't uh, advocate for Nazism in Germany, and if you're a political candidate or you're a political party, you can be... Uh, a ban from the political process on that basis. And in America, we don't quite have the same level uh, of this because we have a First Amendment and different historical culture, but we have versions of this. I mean, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which has gotten a lot of play, obviously, in the wake of January 6th, prohibits politicians who have engaged in insurrection from being uh, in the political process. That's a kind of militant democracy. So, So are you skeptical that that can get you out can help us escape the kind of tension, the paradox, right? The, the whole point of your book, that democracy uh, by its very nature cannot effectively fight against anti-democratic forces. So this is a really great question. And, and I think it speaks to something Alexis de Tocqueville gets to. And in, you're right, this notion of militant democracy. And I think 
in every country, it, so in every democracy, it can play out differently. But the law can be used to support democracy, but oftentimes it, it can be used as a constraint on democracy. I mean, one of the things we point out in, in Weimar, uh, there were sort of emergency uh, checks on civil liberties that that could be exercised. And even before the Nazi party took over, these were invoked at certain times. And, and I think in some ways, militant democracy, liberal democracy, there are ways, there's always these ideas that, okay, we can, we can try to paper over so we don't have an explosion of dangerous rhetoric. But ultimately, and whether it's Germany or another country where everything seems to be lovely, or even, you know, you know lo- looking at our history in the 21st century from the perspective of, of say, the 1990s, is that, you know, ultimately we are at the behest of rhetorical choices, whether it's from demagogic politicians or Supreme Court justices or attorneys general. Um, and so those choices do get made and you never know how it's going to turn out is what I, I, I guess uh, uh, is, is what I'm suggesting. Yeah. You know, the law's a, a clumsy construct and it's as good or bad as the, the individuals that, that make it up. I think if we've learned nothing in the last four or five years is that the, the law is quite malleable and our, our institutions are quite malleable and quite contingent. And uh, if they become occupied by people who aren't invested in them, they will go away and, and, and the floor can drop out rather quickly. And I think that's one of the many disturbing lessons of, of this, you know, this era, as it were. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial It's a great way 
to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount 
for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code LAWFARE20. And as a law professor, I will, uh, I will have to admit that you are right. The law is a messy, malleable thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we've talked, I think, now a little bit about the, you know, the kind of the, the, the first or the, the, the first major argument about the, of the book, the relationship, sometimes cooperative, sometimes antagonistic between liberalism and democracy. I want to turn to the media, media side. And obviously, we've had different forms of media. And again, the, the history of that is really interesting in the book. But I want to start and focus on the post-war American story, because there with the rise of television, I think we see the birth of what we have today as our media environment, though obviously it's changed. You have this wonderful description of uh, how TV first saved Richard Nixon's career, the famous Checkers speech. Uh, then it hurt him in the 1960 election because JFK was more telegenic. And then again, it kind of, it, it did not do him any favors with Watergate. So I'd love to hear from you all about how you think TV changed democracy and then also, how did it lose its central place? You know, obviously, we still have TV. Obviously, cable news in particular is really important. Fox News is really important. But maybe I spend too much on time on Twitter, and I don't have a cable subscription, right? I just watch Netflix. It seems to me, at least, the vibe is that even if a bunch of people are still watching TV, somehow social media is more important. I'm curious if you agree with that, and if so, what supplanted? You know, why, why did TV lose its, its dominance? Well, I'll just I, – I think Zach can better – speak to how TV changed politics. But I would push back on this. And we were actually just talking about this the other day, uh, yesterday, actually. There's a lot of talk about the digital revolution and social media and how that's changed everything. And, and in some ways it has, but we are still absolutely positively living in the world that TV and radio built. And you, I could make the case that TV and radio are still more important than Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. Will that be the case in five, 10 years? I don't know. We're in this period of convergence where digital tech is is converging with with TV and radio and these other forms of media and it's it's scrambling the environment in ways that I don't even think we understand yet. Like we don't even have we're entering we're transitioning to a new period that does not even have a name yet. I don't think we've even begun to understand how digital is actually changing us, what it means to be human and how we interact in the world and relate to the world. We're just at the beginning of this. But we're still very much in the age of TV. And the January 6th hearings are like a, a very clear example of that. But uh, yeah, I don't, I'll let Zach take it from there. Right. Well, television, I think, was enormously important uh, in facilitating this, this notion of the image or the moment. And so for Nixon, it's saving himself with the checker speech, losing the 1960 election next to Kennedy, and then having uh, the ad executives, including a young enterprising producer by the name of Roger Ailes, play a huge role in, in 1968 uh, um, in the, the famous book about the Nixon campaign of 68. It's like they wanted uh, the atmosphere of the Astrodome, you know, where <laughs> the wind never blows, there's never an errant bounce. Uh, and, and then obviously the disaster 
uh, for Watergate is truly him saying, I'm not a crook, you know, and, and it's like, well, you, you gave it away again. And then he rehabilitates himself as a statesman at the end of his life uh, as, as well. So it's a good through line. But I think the rhythms of television continue with us, even if people are cutting the cord. And, and, and I think what Sean's referring to is we, we are not in a fully digital age yet. Uh, I think we put at the end of the book that this is a sort of uh, event horizon beyond which uh, we can we can see. I mean, in you're you're seeing a sort of not just pushback, but you know, TikTok is 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 using video. But then also, it's interesting that Netflix, you know, the great disruptor, is like, oh yeah, we may have to use ads. And it's like, oh, you're rediscovering television, are you? Cool. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you know, I I am curious how this plays out, and I do think that there's a a sense to which even though we're we're extolling the power of TV and the image uh, right now, we also sort of concluded a moment during 2020, you know, for President Trump, he got everything that he wanted, a daily press conference while the country was locked down, all eyes were on him, you know, uh, a, a sort of provocative debate performance, uh, a photo op, you know, clearing protesters, a, another up as he recovered from COVID. These were supposed to be uh, the RNC speech at the White House. These were supposed to be great moments in TV history for for the presidential image. And they sort of fell flat. So I am curious in what sense, not just the power of television, but the power of the image could be waning. I mean, I don't think, Alan, I'm curious, would you even disagree with this? Because I don't think it's an overstatement to say, like a lot of people talk about Trump and Twitter, right? Like how he was an early adopter of Twitter and he probably doesn't win the presidency without Twitter. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know who can, who can say. But I don't think there's any doubt that Trump is not president of the United States without The Apprentice. I think that's the case, right? Is, if he doesn't do that television show, if that doesn't establish his brand and his image in the way that it did, is he even competitive? Does he even is he even allowed to run for president uh, when he does? I don't think so. I don't. No, I, I I think that's right. And 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 here, I mean, I do agree with you, Sean, that we are entering in this sort of convergence of TV and then social media in ways that I I think are more of an acceleration, frankly, than a sub supplantation. And and there was a there's a sentence in the in the book. I don't think you guys go too much into it, maybe because. I don't know, it freaked me out. Maybe you were too freaked out to consider the implications of it, which is, you know, when, when you know, open AI gets super intelligent and then takes control over social media algorithms, I mean, are, is it just, are we over? Is it, is it done? I mean, that, that is a total singularity of media studies, right? Um, it, it is a, it is a scary, it is a scary thought. And you, you wrote, you wrote just enough to, to freak the reader out <laughs> because I don't have any, I mean, I, there's, I don't know what else to say, right? We simply have no idea what is on the other side of that, right? If people think we're in some kind of post-truth world now, if people think reality has been carved up and, and fragmented and, and scrambled now, holy shit, right? I, imagine when, when, when deep fakes are truly like indiscernible from, from real clips. I mean, I, no one knows what that world is going to look like, and it's it is impossible to predict how it will change our politics. But there's no doubt it will. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious also to, to then get your thoughts on on how we should think about the essence, such as it is, of a particular media technology. I mean, obviously, your book relies as literally every book uh, should rely. Um, that's thinking about media on, on Marshall McLuhan. And I've read some Marshall McLuhan. Most importantly, I've seen Annie Hall. So I feel like I'm an expert in, in, his, in his thought. Uh, it's a great scene. Um, yeah. Right. And so, you know, the famous phrase, the medium is the message, articulates this idea that that the format of the media in some sense uh, determines what you can say and particularly the, the, the emotional valence. There's hot media, there's cold media, right? There's media that's about a breath over time versus media that's about, you know, breath over space. And, and obviously TV is the kind of quintessential, well, I, f- I forget if he calls it a hot media or cold media, but it's certainly media, it's certainly media that, that kind of overpowers the viewer, I think, and, and flattens cognition. And, and yet, and so, Sean, you brought up the January 6th hearings, and I wanted to ask you about that. I've been watching the January 6th hearings, and I've been amazed at the sobriety, the seriousness of it. I mean, this to me shows that TV can be an amazing force for good, especially if you compare it to the sort of hot takes of of Twitter. Uh, So I'm I'm curious how you see a particular media affect democratic discourse, especially in relation to sort of other, maybe even worse alternatives. Yeah, I mean, Zach could probably speak to media ecology better than I can. But I mean, I think all we're, all we're really trying to say is that, you know, look, we invent our technological tools and we invariably and in different ways become the tools of those tools. And because media is so fundamental to how we structure our world, to how we relate to it and other people, to the narratives that impose order on our reality, our tools of communication are absolutely transformative and foundational. They color our perceptions and our feelings and our thoughts, whether we know it or not. And, you know, Neil Postman, one of the prominent media ecologists, some people think he was the first to use the term, uh, his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, I cannot recommend highly enough. But, you know, he says a medium is a technology within which a culture grows and it gives shape to a culture's politics and social life and ways of thinking, you know, like Zach and I, I don't, I don't think are, are hard technological determinist, right? Like I think human life is too complicated for, for that, but I am a kind of soft determinist in the sense that I do think technology is a primary driver of change, maybe not the sole driver, but a, a prominent driver. And to think about the January 6th hearings, right? Like what's so interesting is that like, as I was just saying, I still think we live in the political world built by radio and television but the digital revolution and the political economy of the news business has splintered everything, right? And so you have the Democrats staging this TV spectacle, right? And I think they even brought in like the former head of like ABC News or something like that to like direct, like literally like direct like the primetime hearing the other night. But the thing about it is that even though it is a kind of TV show, it is still very liberal democratic in its operation, right? It's this like measured deliberative affair designed to make a methodical case against Trump and his Republican enablers. But a massive chunk of the country isn't watching, isn't hearing it. And they inhabit a media ecosystem in which this isn't really happening or it's happening, but it's a complete sham, right? Like, I don't know if if you read that, uh, the profile of Steve Bannon by Jennifer Senior in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, but it's like, you know, you've got you've got Steve Bannon in there, you know, quoted saying we're going to shove democracy up the libs asses. 
you know. He's a very eloquent man. Yeah, and you've got you've got I'm watching Jake Tapper on CNN the other night interviewing John Dean, right, doing his best impression of a 20th century newsman, you know, pining for the the Watergate moment, but it ain't happening. It isn't possible. And this kind of nostalgia for this a bygone era, right, where we live in some kind of monoculture where everyone's like watching like three news channels of the same show, the same story of reality. That that is gone, man. It is it is it is it is gone. Well, what strikes me as interesting is I think there's value for congressional hearings to establish a sort of, I guess, a forensic record of how these things happened. But it, but it almost, I mean, it's all predicated. I just keep seeing is, was this the smoking gun? Was this the Watergate moment? Was this, like they just, there's this, there's this desire or hope that we're going to have this moment where everything clicks. And I, I guess for me, and, and, and again, like you may know legally what they're doing here um, because, and I find it kind of interesting is it's like almost as though Congress is putting together this TV pseudo event to convince the Department of Justice to charge Trump with maybe fraud, maybe sedition, maybe, and, and, and so it's, it strikes me as sort of interesting is they haven't clarified what they want, but this is all being staged to, to sort of, is it to influence the public or to inspire something from, from DOJ? And, and, and so in, in either case, I think you're dealing with such a fragmented environment that the utility of the hearings also get sort of uh, spun around in this laundry machine of our culture. Yeah, I, I will say the, uh, a lot of the lawfare daily slack traffic is trying to figure out what it is the January 6th committee is is trying to do at a strategic level. Yeah, I mean, look, you have a lot of pundits saying none of this will matter. What the hell are we even doing it for? Even Democrats, prominent Democrats are, are, are sort of conceding that. And then you have a lot of pundits. I just read a piece by Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post you know, countering uh, uh, in a very sentimental way with lots of platitudes about, of course, it matters. It matters for precedent. It matters for the rule of law, these sorts of things. And okay, I I don't disagree with that. Sure. Uh, uh, The hearings should happen. I'm glad they're happening. But I think millions of Americans do not give a shit. And I think 35, 40% of the country doesn't have any real abstract commitment to these liberal values, right? Uh, these conversations are, uh, uh, you know, one of, one of the reasons why we think that the age of liberal democracy is over, not that liberal democracy is over, it will, that, that's not even possible, right? But we've lived in this kind of post-war media environment that was sort of managed by gatekeepers and, and the, the amount of stories a society was able to tell about itself was, was, was fairly bounded, right? There was only so many sources of information. But now the world has been shattered into a billion trillion pieces. And, and it's, it's choose your own adventure now. Right. And I think we're learning that a lot of people don't really give a shit about liberalism. And, and they're just they're, 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 they're playing a game, right? a game that television and the news businesses has helped engineer. And they just want their team to win. And that's it. You know, I mean, and that's OK, too. I mean, there's a sense to which, you know, we we continually talk about polarization as a pathology, and I think we see negative effects and 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 problems that arise by it. But from the standpoint of democracy, as we've tried to 
go through it, you would naturally expect the public to become polarized and to actually care about what they care about and break out into teams and tribes. And so, at any rate, I, I think sometimes our, our language about where we are is sometimes there's a default because it's counter to this monocultural sense of consensus that that was so thoroughly um, tied up with the age of liberal democracy. Now we don't have that anymore, but that's also just where we <laughs> we find ourselves. So your your book is, I think, primarily diagnostic, I think is, is a fair way to put it. And I think this, this last point that both of you made, that it's not that liberal democracy is over, it's that the age of liberal democracy is over. It's the media landscape, the media ecology that made liberal democracy the only game in town. That's what's over. And I think that's yeah. a, a really, really nice yep. way, I think, of, of summarizing kind of one of the, the main sets of your book. And, and although it is primarily a diagnostic, you do, you do suggest at the end, like some ideas for, for reform. You know, you talk about the importance of refunding local, uh, local news, which I think, I think there's general broad consensus. You talk about the importance of media and civic education. I'll admit I'm, I've always been a little skeptical when people call for, you know, more civic education, but it, it probably can't hurt. I, I am curious what you think about uh, sort of another related policy issue that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about as someone who thinks about you know, technology companies and, and regulation, which is you know, whether or not technology companies should have a totally free hand in how they structure the digital public space. And so, you know, for example, there are these laws coming out of Texas and Florida that purport to limit the sorts of moderation that companies can do. And these laws are not, I think, good faith attempts to preserve democratic culture. They're pretty obviously kind of bad faith Republican posturing. And I think they've been rejected by sort of everyone as such. But I do think they're getting at something, which is that, uh, look, in a world in which you have these companies that control the digital public space, the people should have some say beyond just the market mechanism of how that digital public space looks. And although maybe the only thing scarier than Facebook controlling how we talk is the government controlling how Facebook controls how we talk, um, it does seem that that this current laissez-faire state of affairs where everything is just driven by uh, Instagram's desires for more clicks and engagement, quote unquote, is, is unsustainable. And so I'm curious if you think that we just need to come back to sort of more aggressive governmental regulation of the media ecology. You know, this is somewhere where I think I just have to be honest and say, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm way out of my 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 depth here. You know, I, I don't I mean, you're, you you know, the law way better than than I do. I, I, I am not comfortable with with uh, Mark Zuckerberg or the good folks at Twitter or Facebook, you know, uh, managing the discourse and, and deciding what what is and isn't permitted. I'm also not comfortable with the government doing that either. I mean, I think this is why we keep coming back to the paradox. Right. By definition, it is inescapable. Like a simply the idea that we can use the law or or institutions or or technologies to avoid the, the challenges of the paradox, I think, is 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 foolish. Right. I just don't think there's any way sustainable way or any way to do this that doesn't actually undercut what makes democracy democracy, which is a truly open space in which people can express themselves however they want. Right. I just don't know. I don't think you can tamp that down without also rendering democracy undemocratic. And that is simply too high a price. 
maybe somebody smarter than me has, you know, some, some fix here, but brother, I, I, I don't have it. I, I really don't. I really don't. I love the question because it allows me to nerd out, I suppose, a little bit about the press clause, which are forgotten press clause of our First Amendment. And so, I mean, it's the, the, the laws out of Texas and Florida. I mean, I, I think the idea, I mean, these tech companies, they're ultimately, they're, they're publishing and broadcasting things. I mean, specifically publishing and and I think that distinction between platform and publisher is sometimes a little silly. Um, I'm not sure how that truly became a thing. And and but I, I guess part of it is, I mean, and they have powerful networks that they've that they've created, but they rise in in fall to a certain extent, and their influence certainly. Whereas Facebook helped, I think the Obama presidential campaign in 2012. We saw how Facebook and all the boomers being on there uh, helped the Trump campaign in 2016. And, and I think there is a way in terms of if, you know, the fact that the, much of the ad tech that these companies use are based on surveillance and data. There's no like First Amendment right to like spy on people's data. So if the government wanted, they could regulate that, which which might help their part. But in terms of discourse, uh, one thing social networking has allowed, and I always think that that's sometimes a better term for it, is it has allowed people to create their own discourses and groups and network among themselves. And in some ways you get QAnon, uh, but in other ways uh, you get the rise of more maybe productive social organizations and social movements. Right. And it's also allowed very powerful entrenched interest and forces to manipulate people who use those platforms in ways that is not always apparent to the people being manipulated. Right. And, you know, this is this is really thorny, complicated territory. And I don't think anyone has any idea what to do about it. We, we are we are in the middle of a transition and it is it is upending our our politics and really our culture. Um, that is the only thing that is apparent. What to do about it is anything but. So the book ends on this very interesting philosophical note in which you advocate for an, an existential understanding of democracy. And I, I want to first start by asking uh, you, Sean, because I, I suspect you, you may have been the driving force behind that, that portion of the book. What, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to take an existentialist orientation to the paradox of, of democracy? The point is to say that democracy is something that has to be continually reachieved by the citizens that make it up through their engaged choices and actions, right? On our reading of democracy, democracy is a kind of blank slate. It is a open field, a permanent possibility. It is a decision to play a perpetual iterative game. But that game is also defined by a, a tragic ambiguity, right? It allows for its own destruction because it is open and free. It can and does and will unleash forces that will destroy it, right? And so that makes it an existential burden for everyone who inherits it in the sense that the openness and the freedom that defines democracy because of that openness and that freedom runs on a kind of honor system. I think that's the way we put it in the book, right? Nothing is ethically secured. Nothing is guaranteed. 
your democracy can tumble in the direction of di dictatorship or or liberalism, right? And ultimately, that comes down to the citizens, right? And what they're persuaded to believe or do or not. And that's why choice is always going to be, you know, the thing about existentialism is it just simply says, hey, look, you know, I identity is not fixed, right? Or, there is no essence, right? This is, we, we are simply what we choose to be. And democracy is what the people who make it up choose, right? Collectively. And that's a mess. It's a total mess, but that is fundamentally the condition. And that's sort of where I was coming from with trying to see it through that lens. Yeah. I mean, I think life is absurd as an existentialist standpoint and democracy is kind of absurd as we've discovered, but that doesn't mean you, you sort of throw away the, the cup. Uh, it's that, that because it's kind of absurd is that you have to commit that you're responsible. And I think there is, you know, we have a great deal of admiration uh, for the courage of those who've been, you know, persistent in trying to mobilize and continually, you know, have faith in democracy over a period. I mean, you think about over 200 years of American democracy and how some groups have been so poorly treated, yet the commitment to try to improve and, and make changes and, you know, is something that democracy permits that other systems do not. But it's, it's never perfect and you're never dealing with perfect resources. And those imperfect resources of communication we deal with require our existentialist commitments. Yeah, I mean I, that's why we sort of begin and 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 end the book with you know returning to to Camus and Sisyphus, you know, democracy as that unwieldy boulder that um, is constantly suspended, really, you know, between the the, the peak and the valley, right? And you know, uh, if you stop pushing, it will tumble over you, and and that is the way of 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 fascism. That is the way of 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 autocracy. But whether or not it, it goes that way is, is ultimately up to the public and whether or not they're able to avoid, resist, whatever word you want to use, the temptations of, of the bad faith anti-democratic actors who are exploiting the open society in which they live. And we, we, we are unfortunate in that we live in a world now where the ability of that bad faith actors to exploit democracy is never been greater and because it's so new and so fragmented it's it's you know we haven't really figured out how to deal with it i'm not sure that we we can but that is what makes democracy i think a, an existential struggle do you view it as a tragic story or an optimistic story and i ask because you know we've talked about the myth of sisyphus in this conversation, you, you mentioned it a lot in, in your book. So I went and I reread it in preparation for this interview. And it's an, I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing essay. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, it can read quite depressingly as many existentialists can. And then you get to the last two sentences, which are, are really amazing because suddenly Camus kind of pulls up and he says this, the struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And that's how the essay ends. And so I wonder, in a way, I mean, the story you tell is in some ways a very dispiriting one, but it's also a heroic and optimistic one 
because each of us gets to fight for democracy. And even if we might lose, even if the boulder might fall down, like what else can we do? I mean, do you, are you, are you happy? You too, in, in this fight, even though you recognize that the whole project is in some deep sense absurd. I think a lot turns on, on how you choose to see it. I mean, look, it's a miracle that democracy exists at all. It really is. It's, it's not, it's not baked into the, the cosmos, right? Like it, it, the democracy did not have to become a thing, right? Human beings invented it. And that's a damn miracle. And we are lucky to have inherited that project. But now the boulder falls to us. Um, is it tragic? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, but it's also heroic, right? And, and, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that the struggle is the point, right? That's what life is, right? Eventually, <laughs> the lights go out, right? And whether or not your life felt meaningful to you or whether or not your, your democracy survives is, 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 is a question of what you did or didn't do or what other people did or, or didn't do, whether they took action or they didn't, um, whether they, they retreated into quietism or, you know, started pushing. But I think it's, it's both tragic and beautiful, right? Which is kind of what life is. I mean, we're, we're sort of just hoping for clear eyes uh, about this in some ways, because at some point, to live in a democracy is to be disappointed. An election will will go against you. A Supreme Court decision will go against you. And yet, I mean, you can storm the Capitol uh, or you can acknowledge that that's, that's sort of what happened. And yet you still live in that society uh, and that changes down the road. Because I think a lot, whether it's these big, important questions about the environment or uh, individual rights or, or even just like infrastructure, these things, these are all 30 to 50 year projects, but we always know the next election is never too far away. Uh, so there's the near term, long term, but there's, there's hope uh, I think in that, which I, which I think is exciting. And I think as the, the sort of liberal democracy papered over some of these contradictions I think our book and why I think Sean and I are at least somewhat optimistic, even if we find it a little absurd, is is that now this is this is the the real game is afoot here, because this is democracy as such, and so there's something exciting about that. There's an opportunity there, but we don't know if those opportunities are going to be taken or squandered, because that's democracy. Yeah, you know, the, I guess the last thing I, w- I would say is that you know. I- one thing that the, the age of liberal democracy allowed us to do was take it for granted, right? The world just felt like it was on firm ground and it, it felt like the game was just going to keep going and going and going. And I think we have learned that that's actually not the case, that it was, it was always contingent. <laughs> and uh, I think that's more apparent now. And, and hopefully that's, that's an impetus to, to, to get off the bench and start pushing. Um, and, and if it isn't, then the democracy that we have won't last. It just won't, you know? And I think that's the case. Well, I think we should end on what I'm going to decide is a hopeful note. Uh, Zach, <laughs> Sean, thank you very, very much for coming and talking about your excellent book, The Paradox of Democracy. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. This is fine. Thanks for having us on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And you can buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.